The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With the rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all, I want to encourage you, uh, if you see our worship team after service, make sure and hug their necks. What a blessing uh, they are to us and, and how they worked so hard and how they've served us this morning just beautifully. Um, I want to let you know a little bit about uh, why I'm coming to you the way I am this morning. I was just this past week at Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida, uh, helping chaperone over 100 high school seniors from CPA. And so that explains why I am the way I am right now. Uh, have you ever heard of the Velocicoaster? It's considered one of the most extreme. Have you heard of the, have you ridden? The, you've been on it. You want, yes, you want to. I, I know you want to. Let me tell you why you want to. It's considered one of the most extreme roller coasters in the entire world. It has a 155-foot drop. You go from zero to 70 miles an hour in 2.4 seconds. Like, that's faster than the Millennium Falcon that made the Kessel run in 12 parsecs, right? As Han Solo says. This thing is absolutely amazing. I wrote it like four or five times, and you write it once, okay, and it actually passes over and under itself over 40 times. So in less than, about just a little over a minute, you go over and under this thing over 40 times. It's just complete, utter disorienting insanity. And so I wrote it one time and got off and said, hey, can I just get back on? They said, yeah, just, just let this train go and get back on. So I rode twice, like 30 seconds apart. It was simply amazing. And so all that to say, you're going to have to put on your fast ears this morning because I'm coming at you hot. Um, I'm still, it's like I'm still on the Velocicoaster. Uh, we find ourselves with a text like this, uh, Micah chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. And, and much like his contemporary, the prophet Isaiah, who in Isaiah 9, 6 spoke of the coming of the Prince of Peace. These are Christmas texts traditionally. And here we are this morning, uh, middle March, somewhere between the crude cradle of Bethlehem, and the cruel cross of Golgotha. Has it ever dawned on you just how kingly our Christmas carols are? How kingly our Christmas songs are? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. It came upon a midnight clear. Peace on the earth, goodwill to men. From heaven's all-gracious king. Silent night, holy night. Wondrous star, lend thy light. With the angels let us sing. Hallelujah to our King. Let all mortal flesh keep silence. King of kings, yet born 
of Mary. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a Angels we have heard on high, come to Bethlehem and see him whose birth the angels sing. Come adore on bended knee, Christ the Lord, the newborn. O come, all ye faithful. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and adore him, born the king of angels. I wonder if we need to sing these songs more at other times in the life of the church, lest we lose touch with our conviction of and our comfort in our kingly Savior. Uh, so that we can see this prophecy of Micah 5, uh, not as an isolated text, but in the context of the burden of this prophet from the backwater town of Moresheth, you got to realize the people of God weren't impressed with him. They, uh, they didn't feel his sense of urgency, even though Assyria, chapter 5, verses 5 to 6, and Babylon, chapter 4, verse 10, were looming stage left and stage right. Assyria would sack Israel to the north. In 722, as you know, Babylon would take Judah to south in 586. In fact, chapter 5, verse 1, there's a bit of cheekiness uh, as, as Micah says, okay, go ahead and assemble your troops. But this thing's already happening. This thing's already done. Sennacherib of Assyria has already struck your king Hezekiah on the cheek. It, it's a metaphor to, describing the humiliating defeat that the people of Israel are already experiencing with the impending siege of Jerusalem, 701. So the book of Micah is in many ways God's lawsuit against his people. Uh, He had called them and their forebears to holiness. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, For I, the Lord your God, am holy. You therefore shall consecrate yourself and be holy, for I am holy. Exodus 19, verse 6, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 20, 1 to 17, the Ten Commandments, they were to learn and love and live the law of God. And just so you know, anytime we see the law of God that we are to live out, the imperative, say of the Ten Commandments, do this, don't do that, thou shalt, thou shalt not. The imperatives of the law are always couched in and fueled by the indicative of the grace of gospel relationship. Before there's a thou shalt or a thou shalt not, the Lord says, I am yours and you are mine. I am the Lord your God. I have rescued you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You are mine and I am yours now. Live in light of that relationship. So, so what, what's the Lord's case against his people in Micah? Well, on the one hand, much like uh, his contemporary uh, Hosea, chapter 4, um, there was no orthodoxy. You see that in chapter 3 of Micah. Those responsible to teach were not teaching sound doctrine. Instead, they were taking bribes and they should have been shepherding the flock. So there was no orthodoxy, no sound biblical teaching, and subsequently there was no orthopraxy, right? There was no living it out, Uh, much the way you see in Isaiah 59 verse 14, truth lies fallen in the streets. Uh, The poor are oppressed, idolatry is everywhere. Um, The leaders are politically and spiritually corrupt. Moral chaos spreads throughout the land. It's always that way. It's always a choice between Christ or chaos. Christ or chaos. So Israel has experienced and, and frankly has enabled centuries of kings who were corrupt. And soon they would become a people for 400 years, kingless and captive. She'd find herself weak and sin sore. Francis Turretin is a theologian who lived from 1623 to 87, and he said, we are sin sick. In fact, he said, we have a triple disease that needs a triple cure. A triple disease that needs a threefold cure. On the one hand, 
we are ignorant of the word of God. And so we need a prophet who will speak the word for us. We are guilty and full of sin and shame, and so we need a priest to cover us. We are wayward and rebellious, and so we need a king to reign over us. And what we have in this text is a picture of this little one who's going to be born in this little town of Bethlehem who is the prophet, the priest, and the king. And so the, the scene shifts from Jerusalem about to be under siege to a tiny map dot of a town where Micah promises the cure, the triple cure, the threefold office of Christ. Christ will come, O little town of Bethlehem, abandoned and small though you are. You see, they, they had grown weary of the word of God, and the God of the word has turned his face away from them. Our own Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 18, which talks about the assurance of salvation, says that there are times in which the Lord will turn his countenance away from us. Not abandon, not, not leave us, not give us over, but he will turn his face away to leave us, to, to help us come to the end of ourselves, that we would return to him. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation in diverse ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted, and it's by negligence and preserving of it, or by falling into some special sin which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Yet they are never utterly destitute of that seed of God, that life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived, and by the which, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. That's where the people of God find themselves. And so they need this one who would come in a reign of humility. But that was the problem, humility, right? The people love to talk about humility until you get a taste of it. And um, I mean, think about it. They're going to be 400 years kingless, and it's going to end up in a cattle stall. Can't we do better than that? I mean, we've been, we've been 400 years. They're going to be able to say, we, we will have been 400 years kingless, and it's going to resolve in a cattle stall? And yet that's how he comes. I love the, the song, Manger Throne. Manger Throne. What kind of king would leave his home in heaven to make the earth his home? While men seek fame and great renown and lowliness, our king comes down. You say, well, David, but, but wasn't he to be royal? Wasn't he to be of royal lineage? Yeah, he would be the house of David, uh, to be specific. But, but even David needed a savior. You see, but there's both royalty and, and rascals in the lineage of Jesus, and they all needed him to save them. You read Matthew's lineage of Jesus, you think of Tamar, the Canaanite, the daughter of Judah, son of Jacob. She acted as a prostitute in Genesis 38. Or Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, who aided Israel's spies in Joshua 2 to 6. Or Ruth, an outsider, a Moabitess who was grafted in, adopted into the family of her kinsman redeemer, a foreshadow of Christ named Boaz. Or Bathsheba, taken into adultery by King David in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Uh, in humility, the greater David, the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, would come for prostitutes and outsiders, victims and victimizers like, like me and like you. His humility is seen in a text in the New Testament that in many ways is the fulfillment of Micah chapter 5. The book of Philippians is called Letter of Joy, which is an interesting I think if you think about the fact that Paul wrote it when he was in prison. At the end of Acts 28, Paul writes four letters. 
Philippians, Ephesians, Philemon, and Colossians. And Philippians is considered the letter of rejoicing, the letter of joy. And he's in jail when he writes it. And he writes in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of a cross. Therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow above the earth, under the earth, and on the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He made himself nothing, nothing but a child swaddled in a cradle, nothing but a criminal splayed on a cross. It was a reign of humility. It was also a reign of hope. One will come for me, Micah says. One will come who will be for me, the Lord says. One who will speak a new word of hope over this besieged, beleaguered people. We need a word of hope today, do we not? We need the kind of hope that you see coursing through Andrew's veins in John 1, 41, when he rushes to find his brother Simon Peter and says, we have found Messiah, we have found the anointed one. The anointed one is John chapter 1, 1, the Logos, the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The one who came as the incarnated Word to fulfill for us the inscripturated Word. The Word took on flesh, chapter 1, 14 of John's Gospel, and Eskenoson in the Greek. He pitched his tent. He tabernacled among us. He was the fulfillment of the tabernacle, the temple, intimate dwelling of God with his people. That's why we call him Emmanuel. It was C.S. Lewis who says that the central miracle of the Christian faith is the incarnation. Those Christians actually believe, Lewis says, that God became man. He came, John 1.18, to exagesato, to exegete the Father for us, to say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Look to me and you'll see your Father's fatherly heart for you. And so Jesus comes to speak a word of hope for the Father. That's why we read in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, long ago and many times in various ways God spoke to the fathers through the, and the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us through his Son from the personified word to the cradle of the word preached at the cross. You see, Bethlehem, understand this, a cattle stall there's going to be a word that is going to go forth that will break the bonds of Assyria and Babylon and sin and death. But this word of the cross is foolishness. Um, 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is, is foolishness, Paul says. It's foolishness. But Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 10, so then let's be fools for Christ. And I'm wondering, are you willing, are we willing at Christ Presbyterian Church to be Fools for Christ. Because there's no other way to be for Christ than to be a fool for Christ. Because please understand it. The message of the cross in a Greco-Roman world where they worshipped Zeus and Hercules, mighty, powerful gods. Finicky, flaky in ways, but powerful. They would worship no god who would suffer death, especially the death of a criminal. That's foolishness. It's folly. It was also offensive to the Jews. Right? Because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Our Messiah will not be cursed like a criminal. Let's be fools for Christ. Let's be willing to, to preach a gospel that um, while we preach it sensitively and lovingly is an offensive gospel. It offends me. It offends you. Our hope seems 
foolish to a culture of rage and outrage. But then there's just something irresistible about it to those for whom this culture of outrage has lost its appeal. Biblical Christianity has never been the fodder of motivational posters. It really never has. You remember back in the day, some of you are old enough to remember, um, there's still evidence of them around. You can, you can Google this. It's called the, the shopping mall. You, ever, you remember, remember shopping malls? And do any of you remember the, the, the typical stores that were in shopping malls? Do you remember that store in the 90s, in the late 90s, called Successories? Anybody remember Successories? And they had all those motivational posters. And corporate America offices everywhere were just wallpapered with motivational posters from Successories. Um, Biblical Christianity has never been the fodder of motivational posters. Christians then and now have faced mockery from their opponents. It was foolish and disgraceful, the cross of Christ. I mean, think about this. What are the odds, humanly speaking, in terms of what the world counts as important and successful, that a worldview like Christianity, founded upon the complete shamefulness from the world's perspective of a God who dies like a condemned criminal? For Paul, for Micah, for us today to preach the cross, to cling to the message of the cross, is to proclaim the daring proclamation of victory in the guise of shame and failure and foolishness and weakness. And so an anointed servant comes to do that. The same one who is our prophet comes as our priest who would cover the iniquity of his rebellious people. Theologians speak of the active and passive obedience of Christ. Notice Micah says, one will come forth for the Lord. How will he be for the Lord? Well, think about King David. King David himself, who was a prophet and a king and a priest according to the Old Testament, could say in Psalm 1, verses 1 to 2, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night, and yet David himself walked in the counsel of his own wicked desires. He stood in his sin. He sat and scoffed at the law of God. Even though he could say in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love thy law. Yet, he would scoff at it at times. And here comes the greater son of Bethlehem. The greater son born of Bethlehem. The true and greater David. Jesus Christ, who actively obeyed the whole law of God. Every jot and tittle. His food, John 4, 34, was to do the will of his father. And he is for you a priest who is at one and the same time the spotless lamb, according to 1 Peter 1.19, and the sinless high priest, Hebrews 7.26 and following. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness, as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. He is at one and the same time the unblemished lamb of sacrifice and the perfect sinless high priest, and yet he had to become that lamb because he, the sinless priest, takes upon himself your sin and mine in his passive obedience. He actively obeys the law of God. He is sinless, 
and then he, in his passive obedience, which doesn't mean he's checked out. The word passive obedience comes from the Greek word pasco. The word pasco in the Greek means I suffer. The suffering obedience of Christ. Have you ever heard of the passion of Christ? The suffering of Christ? Pasco, the passive, the suffering obedience of Christ. He comes as the one who would suffer for those of us who are lawbreakers. Micah says, she will give birth, but to whom? Well, Micah 5, 1 to 5, is actually further fulfillment of an initial prophecy of Christ. Jesus fulfills some 350 promises from the Old Testament. Think about that. Jesus fulfills some 350 Old Testament promises about himself, but Micah 5, 1 to 5, is actually the fulfillment of, of a prophecy that goes all the way back to the beginning in Genesis 3, the promise of the seed who would crush the serpent's head in Genesis 3.15, the proto-euangelion, the first evangel, the first announcement of the gospel. And yet, while he would crush the head of the serpent, he, the seed of the woman, the one to be born in Micah, would be bruised himself. The wicked would take counsel against him. John 12, right? The high priests come together. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. We've got to do something about this guy. Everybody's going to all follow him now. We've got to get rid of Jesus, and we need to get rid of Lazarus. We can't have the evidence of walking around proving that this man can raise people from death to life. The wicked take counsel against him. He would pay for the way of sinners like you and me. 1 Peter 3, 18 and following. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He would be scoffed at and ridiculed upon the cross, even as his lifeblood was washing away the stain of our sin. You read Matthew 27, 39 to 44, they wag their heads. They wag their heads, Matthew says. And they say, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. If you could do that, why don't you come down and save yourself? If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Right? They begin to mock him, the chief priests and the elders. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Then let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Well, if he trusts in God, let God deliver him if God desires him. He said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Remember I told you that Micah is God's lawsuit against his people. Here's the thing. If God were to bring a lawsuit against me, against you, with the infinite offensiveness of the least little tiny sin I have ever committed because I've sinned against infinite holiness, it would be case closed and the verdict unappealable. If I were in the dock, case closed, verdict unappealable, and yet... Your priest steps forward and tells you to step out of the dock. And he takes your place in the dock. The witness against you and me of the law of God broken, our consciences condemning us, the tender mercies of God trampled underfoot by our arrogant pride, all heaped upon him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we would become the righteousness of God. As Martin Luther, 1483 to 1546, once said, As all the prophets saw this, that Christ was to become the greatest thief, murderer, adulterer, robber, desecrator, blasphemer, adulterer there's ever been in the world. Not in the sense that he's committed these things, but because he took these things upon himself in order to make satisfaction for them with his own blood. As Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse 
for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Your Christ is your curse. So that the verdict, the unappealable verdict over you is not curse. No curse, but Romans 8, 1, no condemnation. Over Christmas, I read again The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's just a great book to read over Christmas. And I love the end of chapter 12, Peter's first battle, and how Aslan, uh, the Christ figure, sends all of the eagles and the centaurs off to rescue the fourth son of Adam, uh, Edmund, right, who has misbehaved. And um, he's rebelled against Narnia. He's rebelled against his siblings. He's rebelled against Aslan. He's rebelled against the deeper magic. He's been allured and tempted and, and pulled in by the white witch. And when the white witch realizes that her victim has been rescued, stolen from her, she comes to confront Aslan and accuses Edmund in front of his brother and sisters, and in front of the great lion. She says, you have a traitor there, Aslan, said the witch. Of course, everyone present knew that she meant Edmund. But Edmund had got past thinking about himself after all he had been through and after the talk he had had that morning with Aslan. And I love this line. It may be my favorite. It's actually my second favorite line in all of the Chronicles of Narnia. The other one is when Jill asks Aslan in the silver chair, well, then I'll just go find another stream. And Aslan says, there is no other stream because there is no other gospel. But I love this. Here's the white witch accusing Edmund of being a traitor in front of Aslan. And it says that Edmund wasn't thinking about himself anymore. He had heard a word from Aslan. And listen to this. He just went on looking at Aslan. It didn't seem to matter what the witch said. As Robert Murray McShane, who lived from 1813 to 43, Scottish Presbyterian pastor, said, for every look at your sin, take ten looks at Jesus. Doesn't matter what the white witch is saying about you. Keep your eyes on Aslan. It doesn't matter what the accuser is saying about you. Look to the anointed servant, your priest, because you have a high priest What shall we say to these things? Romans chapter 8 verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not so graciously give us all things with him? Who shall bring any charge or accusation against God's elect? The answer, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? The answer, Christ died. More than that, who was risen is seated at the right hand of God and is making intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, we are being killed for your sake all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You have a high priest, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. That is why we approach boldly the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. You have a high priest. Think about this. We are told in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who has passed through the heavens, let us approach boldly the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Is it not good to know? I love 
I love reminding you of this. Is it not good to know that your high priest does not scold you for your weaknesses? He sympathizes with your weaknesses. Let us approach boldly the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Does it dawn on you that according to Micah's prophecy, the angels would someday tear open the veil between earth and heaven to sing of the Bethlehem birth of the one who would someday tear down the curtains in the Jerusalem temple. Bethlehem, Nashville, behold your priest. The reason we could say Merry Christmas about three months or so ago is because Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Happy Easter are just a few weeks away. He's an anointed servant. He's also our ancient shepherd. He's our prophet He is our priest, and he is our king. Again, some 350 prophecies fulfilled, but you look at verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. What was Micah really saying there about, about this kingly shepherd? Is that he would protect, he would protect us. Bethlehem, you are so little. So very little. And in your little town, in a little cattle stall, a little baby, so very little will be given. But Bethlehem, brace yourself. That babe in the manger scene reigns forever eternal king. Much the way we read in the last battle where C.S. Lewis tells us of King Tyrion who hears Queen Lucy say, Yeah, uh, In our world, too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. Indeed, something fierce was laid in the manger that night. A king who would protect us from the things we most dread. You read the first five chapters of Mark, the first seven chapters of Luke, the five things you and I fear the most. Natural disaster, the demonic realm, sickness, sin, even death itself. Jesus comes out swinging and shows himself powerful over the five things that we fear the most. You know, I was in Universal this past week. I got to go, um, I love the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, I love the Harry Potter series, and, and I got to ride Hagrid's Magical Adventure, which is another exhilarating coaster. Um, but, but over in, um, in the Wizarding World, uh, there I, I got my Butterbeer t-shirt, which you'll see me posting something with that on, and and uh, I'm really proud of that. I, I got recently my C.S. Lewis t-shirt and my Butterbeer t-shirt. And Diane's like, you're just going to wear those out. It's all you're, every, every time I see you, you're be wearing those things. You're going to get old. But uh, have you ever noticed Harry Potter, his last name Potter? Why Potter? It's a reference to the potter's field in Jeremiah, a place of, of death. And then there's Voldemort. Voldemort, the evil Voldemort. It's French from Voldemorte to, to flee death, one who flees death. Voldemort was so afraid of his mortality. He so clung to immortality. It didn't matter who he had to victimize or kill in the process of fleeing death. J.K. Rowling herself, a Christian, said that self-sacrificing love is the greatest love, the greatest power in the world. And when you come to book seven, Harry Potter and the Death of Hallows, and and look, this is a bit of a spoiler, but things have been out for about 20 years, so I'm not going to totally apologize here. Um... But in book seven, you come to Godric's Hollow, the chapter Godric's Hollow, and Harry goes with Hermione into the cemetery, and he sees the gravestone of his parents, and etched etched across the gravestone is 1 Corinthians 15.26, the last enemy 
that shall be destroyed is what? Death. Voldemort would not embrace death. He was about himself. Harry would embrace death so that others might live. Remind you of anyone? Remind you of anyone? Hebrews 2, verses 10 to 18, Jesus who came to destroy him who holds the power of death and deliver all of us who through our fear of death were held in lifelong bondage. Jesus came to destroy and to deliver. Something fierce was laid in the manger. Something fierce was in Micah's prophecy. He came to protect us like a king should protect. He came to bring us peace. You look at verses 5 to 7 down below. Speaks of the coming consummation and victory of the church. Peace is going to be ours. Imagine the kingship of Jesus Christ through the authority of his inerrant word being unmistakable in our midst, in our church, at CPC. And his peace, his shalom, will have a spreading effect. Our reverence of King Jesus and our repentance before King Jesus as a church will be our relevance to a watching and wondering world. A watching and wondering world, neck deep in waywardness and wokeness and willfulness, all of which leave people desperately in need of shalom, of peace. The good news for those dying of thirst is that we have the dew of the Lord, the refreshing dew of the Lord that we read about in chapter 5, verse 7, like cool water on sore feet, drawn out for us by the hands of our King, the King that we see depicted In Tolkien's Return of the King, in book five of Return of the King, where the nurse says, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. The king, our king, who was struck on the cheek, that his nail-pierced hands might be raised in benediction over you as you prepare to come to the table of grace. The king, the healing hands of Jesus, whose hands have spread this feast of peace between God and sinners, this supper uh, that tells us that Jesus, the king, was placed not on a throne but in a manger. Why? Because he was given to be food from the beginning. Jesus was given to be food from the beginning, and he's given to be food for you now. Amen. With the servers and table hosts come, we'll prepare our hearts to come to the table together. If you're here this morning and, uh, and you would say, uh, David, that's me. I'm, I'm the lawbreaker. I'm the one who has scoffed. I've stood in the counsel of my own wickedness, but I know I need Jesus, and I, I trust in, and I cling to, and, and I rely on him. If, if you were here and you are uh, in fellowship with a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church, you've been baptized uh, into Christ, and this table is yours. It's for you. Come and feast on Christ. If you're here this morning, you would say, I'm just exploring the truth claims of Christianity. I don't, I don't know that I would call myself a believer in Christ. We're thrilled that you're here. Welcome. Uh, but rather than come and take the bread and the wine, which is itself a confession of faith, take this opportunity maybe to talk with someone around you Ask them, what, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? I promise you, there are those around you who would love to hear your story, they'd love to tell you their story, and they'd love to tell you the old, old story of Jesus. Or, or maybe you just want to come and, and observe as Christians come and take the bread and the wine. And uh, you can come and do that with us and just participate. Hey, Austin, it's good to see you.
But if you're here and you are a follower of Christ and you say, yeah, I'm, I'm hungry for the food that Jesus is, then dare not remain uh, in your seat. Would you pray with your gracious Father? We pray now that you would take uh, these ordinary elements of, of bread and wine, uh, that you would do something extraordinary in us, that you would help us to believe the gospel just a little bit more if we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.